On October 30, 2013, Stein Ringen from the University of Oxford presented a seminar at the Ash Center on his recent book, Nation of Devils. The seminar was titled, Leading a Nation of Devils, How to Get Things Done in a Democracy. This event was part of the Challenges to Democracy Public Dialogue series celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Ash Center. For more information, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Welcome, everyone. It's my great pleasure to uh, welcome back this afternoon the Democracy Program's very first senior visiting scholar, Professor Stein Ringen. Stein is Emeritus Professor of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Oxford, and he is a highly distinguished scholar of politics, democracy, and governmental processes of many different kinds. His previous books include The Possibility of Politics, What Democracy is For, on Freedom and Moral Government, and the Korean State and Social Policy. Now, today he will discuss some of the main themes of his most recent book, A Nation of Devils, Democratic Leadership and the Problem of Obedience. As most of you know, our democracy seminar this year is focusing on challenges to American democracy. Stein's book could not be more timely or uh, important in this regard. Lately, our people, especially people in our government, have been very disobedient. They've been very bad boys and girls indeed, mostly boys. Earlier this month, in a tantrum of disobedience, some of them shut down the government for a couple of weeks because they didn't like the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, which, if you remember, is a law that jumped through all of the hoops necessary to become, well, a law. Some of us were surprised by this, but Stein, I imagine, was not. Indeed, he wrote an entire book that investigates why the challenge of securing obedience in a democracy is so difficult. On page 64, he puts the problem this way. A government, then, is not just a body of persons, but a very small body of persons, practically speaking, a handful of men and women, 20 or so in all. That crystallizes our puzzle. How does it come about that so small a group of people can govern an entire nation? A government consists of people who are much like you and I. They have 24 hours in the day. They need sleep, eat, to take care of family matters, and possibly to have some fun. How do they do it? Well, evidently they do not. <laughs> but sometimes they do, and Stein will explain why sometimes they do and why sometimes, as within as with the uh, implementation of the Affordable Care Act, they fail to do so. In A Nation of Devils, he examines the successes and failures of governing many countries, but especially the United Kingdom and the United States. Executive leadership, of course, is essential to this task, and in his view, successful democratic leadership is very rare indeed. Stein is not uh, afraid to throw punches and doesn't pull many of them in his book, for example, he writes on page 150 that the American political system has not produced good leadership since Mr. Reagan left the stage, although with Mr. Obama, it's too early to tell. We're better off in that regard than Britain, for, which he, for whom he writes, we have to go much further back. After Mr. Churchill, there's been neither steady nor charismatic, charismatic leadership of any note. Fortunately, Stein has an answer for our second-term president, and how we ought to solve some of the challenges that our nation faces. For those answers, however, you'll have to wait for Stein himself to tell you. Please welcome Professor Stein Ringen. Well, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thank you very much, Icon. Um, 
for those words and for the invitation. It's a tremendous joy for me to be back here. I spent about a month here while um, working on this book, and that month was, um, I think, the most productive work period in an academic project that I've ever had, and it was absolutely decisive for getting this um, treatise on devils together. I should say, though, that the devils in this title are not the disobedient ones that you mentioned, but it's us down here <laughs> who are disinclined to obey our leaders up there, um, as um, we should. So it's a book about how um, governments get things done, and it's uh, a book about how they should get things done. And since I'm a man without shame, it's modeled on the great Machiavelli and the prince. And um, in my own mind, from time to time, I've thought of it, or at least it's part of it, as a Machiavelli for democracy. But um, in the comparison, I failed very much on one account. Machiavelli was brilliant in brevity. And although I kept cutting as much as I could, in this manuscript, I didn't get anywhere near to the brevity that the master had displayed. But I'm working on it, Icon, so we'll see. We shall see. <coughs> now, there is a view that governments run things. At least where I come from, we take that very seriously. The prime minister runs the country. The secretary for health runs the health service and so on. And we take that idea very seriously. Last winter, when um, there were some nights of frost in England, there were some highways that were poorly gritted, and the Minister for Transport had to answer in Parliament for the absence of gritting on the highways in Yorkshire, and for whether or not he had assured that there was enough salt on storage in the salt storage units in Yorkshire and Buckinghamshire. Political leaders also take this idea of running things seriously. Um, in the final television debate before the 2010 uh, elections in Britain, Gordon Brown, who was then Prime Minister, he had been pushed onto the defensive in the campaign, and he started that debate by saying, there's a lot to this job, and I don't get all of it right. But I do know how to run the economy in good times and in bad. Well, uh, we should then have known that this was the time to head for the hills, but uh, we didn't. There's also a view of how governments run things. Uh, they do that with the help of tools or instruments. There's a big literature in governance around tools, the tools and instruments of government. Government, says Christopher Hood in his book, The Tools of Government, detect problems and act on them with the help of the tools at their disposal. And those tools include, for example, control over information and resources, authority in the form of legal powers, and the management of people, land, equipment, and so on. And there is a view of what it is that enables governments to put tools to use. They can do that because they have power. Politicians get into government by winning power, and power enables them to get things done. 
Now, all that, uh, I suggest, is wrong. It's just too orderly. Get power, get done. I, for my part, think that governance is a mystery, and I agree very much with Jeffrey Pressman and Aaron Wildowski that it's amazing when government programs work at all. Now, on power, I'm not going to say very much at all here today. I'm going to speak um, at the Clow Center at Boston College uh, on what is power tomorrow, so I'm going to skip that. But, but maybe just say that in my conception, um, it works a little bit like this, that leaders indeed have power, but um, uh, there is not much they can get done with the help of that power. And the reason for that is that followers also have power, which they can use to frustrate the wishes of the leaders. So to understand leadership, then, we need a good understanding of both the power of leaders and the power of followership, to use um, a terminology which I understand is local and which I've just learned um, in the last couple of days. Uh, so um, um, I should just um, sort of flag that there is a great deal of reflection on power that is in the backdrop of what I'm saying here and which I'm not going to speak about directly today. As for tools, well, no government that I've seen, and I've worked for quite a few of them, have had any toolbox to hand in which they could reach when they wanted to do some governing. The tools that Christopher Hood refers to are not in storage in government offices, but spread around in a myriad of agencies all over the country and beyond. Um, information, for example, one of the tools, is not under ministers' control, but is filtered through to them by their officials who can and often do manipulate what they tell their bosses. Which then gets us back to the question of, to the business of running things. If power is not persuasive, and if governments do not control tools, how do they get things done? Well, to better understand that, I've gone back to first base and let myself be guided by a question that Richard Rose put to us in a paper about 20 years ago when he asked, in plain man's language, what governments do? What do governments do? Now, a government is a body of persons governing a state. Now, that's the definition of the Oxford English Dictionary, and in my opinion, an excellent definition, which needs only one little improvement, so that I would say a government is a body of persons trying to govern a state. Um, they do have in their hands power, but that is not anything that enables them to govern in the meaning making things happen out there in society. It is their certificate to rule, uh, but no more than that. From then on, once they have that certificate, it's all trouble at uphill. What governments do? Well, governments 
in my scheme, do one thing and one thing only. They give orders. There's no other output or product that comes from a government's work. Orders. And I think it's worth stressing that point. Governments do very little. Now, that's contrary to the way we often think about governments as wielding great powers. You know, we say that uh, if the problem in front of them is poverty, they could redistribute income. If the problem is inequality, they could tax better. Um, if the problem is um, uh, unruly behavior of private corporations, they could regulate, and so on. But this is just making up lists of things government could do and is in response to the question of what they do, I think, wrong language. Governments do not actually do the kinds of things we are accustomed to saying that they do. They tell others to do things. Governments, for example, do not regulate. They may order officials to impose new regulations on, say, banks. But after that, it's anyone's guess what, what actually materializes in form of new rules and how banks respond to those rules. They give orders. That is the full and unambiguous answer in plain man's language to the question of what governments do. They give orders. Now, government orders, then, as I see it, are of two kinds. They are either commands or they are signals. And that dichotomy makes for a complete classification of government orders by the kind of order. When a government gives an order, it is either commanding or it is signaling or it is combining the two. Orders are commands when compliance is compulsory. It's not at the discretion of officials whether or not to do as their masters tell them, nor is it at the discretion of taxpayers to hand over the cash that the law prescribes. Compliance is compulsory. That, of course, is not to say that there will be compliance, but compliance is nevertheless compulsory. Signals are suggestions from up high to underlings. Suggestions, encouragements, uh, advice, information. And they are signals because compliance is not obligatory. It is at the discretion of us whether and how we follow up on the suggestions that come, up, come down upon us from up high. But may no, make no mistake about it, signals are orders and they are the smart way of getting people to do as they should but do not want. Now, in this little menu, my fascination is with signals more than commands. Commands is crude and, 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 and simple, uh, and uh, actually something that governments can resort to uh, very seldom and often to not much effect. And even when it is necessary to resort to the heavy hand of commanding, for example, when we are told to pay taxes, I, I, repeat, I return very often in, in this exercise to taxes, is I think the, 
the power to tax is really at the heart of government. That's the essence of governing, the power to tax. So I, I keep, keep referring, keep referring to that as an example. Even when um, governments have to resort to the heavy hand of ordering, they have to add on to their orders signals of encouragement. Which means that, but, and signals, so, so orders are never used without being followed up by signals, at least if they're going to have some effect. But signals are often used on their own. So wherever there is government action, there are signals. And it's signals that is the great constant in government actions rather than orders. It's through signals that governments can hope to get things done in the meaning making things happen out there in society. And once we start looking, we see signals everywhere in public policy. People are endlessly told by their government how to behave and what to do. We are recommended to eat healthy food, to not smoke, to not drink and drive, to save more or spend less or the other way around if the economy is lax, to practice safe sex, to read worthy literature, to not litter the landscape, to buy homemade products, to pick up and dispose of dog droppings, to economize with water and electricity, to wash our hands before eating, to pay careful attention to consumer information on food products, to take exercise, and so on. Parents are encouraged to read to their children. Prime Minister Mendes France, in France, encouraged the French to drink more milk and less wine. Totally in vain, of course. Businesses are encouraged to pay workers a decent salary, or, to give, or not to give excessive pay rises to take measures for workplace safety or to offer employees help with childcare, to minimize noise and pollution, to invest in modern technology, to help workers improve their skills, to support neighborhood civic activities, and so on. Churches are encouraged to do charitable work among the poor, pharmacists to dispense free syringes to drug addicts, trade unions to explain members the need to be responsible workers, lawyers to devote some of their time for legal assistance to those who cannot pay, doctors to be cautious with prescriptions. And so it goes on. Hardly anyone or any activity is free from advice about what to do or how to think. Campaigns for or against this, uh, that, or the other is a constant feature of modern governance. Silliness galore, obviously. But far from only silliness. Governments need to inform, to persuade, and to manipulate when that is called for. Um, a government must be seen and heard and make itself the center of attention, and it must outmaneuver those trying to outmaneuver it. It needs to control the issues that become salient in the press and in public awareness, and not to let others take hold of the agenda. It needs to lead, and it needs to display leadership. A government needs to use signals as well in its internal struggle to get its own administration to do what it wants of them. It is not enough to tell officials what to do, and often orders are counterproductive. In his History of Government, S.E. Feiner says that leaders at all times have been up against what he calls the problem of barren management. 
The king can give effect to his orders only through his barons, who must therefore be induced to enthusiastic support, if possible, or at least to acceptance, and discouraged from foot-dragging or, at the worst, open resistance. Good political leaders inspire those who work for them. If they try to get things done by putting fear into their officials, they may get obedience, but they will not get efficiency. Now, since spin is now thought to be repugnant, and that is a result of the excesses of recent leaders such as Tony Blair in Britain and Bill Clinton in the United States, it is worth driving home that there are very good reasons for governments to make use of signals and not only for the promotion of their own excellence. Signals are the government's inputs into the deliberation between itself uh, and uh, citizens and within the citizenry and deliberation that deliberation is the fertilizer on which political culture can flourish there will not be effective governance unless governors follow through to motivating the dominated to obey their authority there will not even be authority since governors need to present themselves and their projects to the governed in order to extract the authority from them that they need. Underlings must be persuaded that they ought to obey and then nudged to actually complying. Without persuasion, no compliance. Citizens do not just have preferences. Preferences um, are formed and it's contained in good leadership to contribute to infusing citizens with the will to reason and to cooperation. Now this is the combination in which signaling in all its manifold forms is essential that enables the government side to feed into a political culture of confidence and trust. Governance depends on vision and there is no way of communicating a sense of purpose and direction uh, without engaging with the citizenry. If a has an in, government has an intention and can realize it through encouragement, it would be wrong to go about it in a more complicated and possibly more repressive way. If wrong or inadequate information is the cause of damaging action, the government should obviously inform. Signals can be used when commands are impossible or unethical and when the control or compliance is not practicable. Preventive health care is a case in point. If we could improve diets, reduce the consumption of junk food, cut down on smoking, avoid the abuse of alcohol, and increase physical activity, there would be immeasurable gains in happiness and welfare, not to mention to public budgets. Signals are cheap and maybe an available policy where more costly measures are not affordable. They are not co coercive, even when more decisive action is necessary. Again, when people are commanded to pay a bit more tax, commands need to be followed up by persuasion. A government 
may be in its full and undisputed right to command people to pay taxes, but it must nevertheless beg them to do so. It must respond to their tacit question about why they should give up more of their hard-earned cash uh, and free the taxpayer from the temptation to persuade himself that he has just cause to resist. Obviously, there are also bad reasons which uh, may lead governments to the politics of signals. And among these is the often irresistible inclination to know-all-ism. Many of us, no doubt, have an urge to teach others about life, and ministers for their sins are listened to and may find it difficult to keep quiet. So in this section, I've um, spent um, more space on explaining signals than commands. Actually, I've, I haven't said anything about commands at all. There is something in the manuscript, and I've skipped that. But I've spent more time on signals, and that is because effective governance depends more on signaling than on commanding, much more so, and much more than is often recognized. Now, governments give orders to get decisions made, and then to get decisions once made, acted upon. Decision-making and decision implementation. Orders go to others, obviously. Therefore, the crux of leadership is to handle others. It's a people business. Leadership is basically a people business. Now, decision-making and decision implementation. Decision-making is the easy part. Well. I should be a bit careful with uh, since I'm speaking, as Arkon mentioned, in the United States of America. Still, I think it holds in the United States of America, too. Decision-making is the easy part, and I'll justify that a little bit as we go along. Decision-making is the easy part. Obviously, all kinds of things may go wrong in decision-making, uh, but still, in the greater scheme of things, it's the easy part. And the reason things are comparatively simple at this stage is that those who are involved are few and close to each other. The ministers and their near others. It's always about others. As long as we are in the land of decision-making, it's ministers and their near others. Any government in a normal democracy, I underline normal democracy, not all democracies are normal democracies, hmm? but in a normal democracy, will have the authority they need to be able to order its near officials to do the planning uh, that has to be done and is likely to find their officials willing and eager. The government and the legislature should usually know each other well enough that the government will only by rare accident make a proposal to the lawmakers that it does not pretty much know will be accepted. But the decisions, the political decisions, also contain second round orders to implement the intention. And this is where things get seriously complicated. There are now many more others involved, 
and many more who are distant others. Second round orders go first to the same officials in the same ministries who previously prepared the decision, but now as an order to put the decision into effect. And that changes everything. The government is dealing with the same people, but in a different way. While it previously told its officials to prepare, plan things on paper, it is now telling them to make things happen in life. And as I know very well from my own experience, in government, planning is easy and fun. Implementation is sheer frustration and difficulty. When it comes to implementation, governments must follow through and follow up and follow up again. And that is very, very hard going. And the reason I think I'm on the dry here, even thinking about the case of the United States of America, is that you are seeing these days how absolutely essential the implementation issue is in the Affordable uh, uh, Care Act. I mean, uh, in hindsight, the decision in Congress on that act was pretty simple. It wasn't very pretty, but it was simple. But the implementation is a nightmare. And it's the implementation side, so often, that is the difficulty. Now, secondly, orders now flow not only from ministers to servants, but also from ministries to underlying agencies with mainly implementing duties. Say the government wants to increase the level of the income tax. The Minister of Finance sorts out the decision, then turns around to her uh, officials uh, and tells them to put the new law into effect. Those officials then turn to the relevant underlying agency, call it the Director of Tax Collection, which redesigns its systems for extracting income taxes according to the no new law. If they are computer systems, they are likely to go wrong. Um, and mobilizes, as best it can, its innumerable local sub-offices to do the job. The world of implementing agencies is much larger than that of ministries. And these agencies are more removed from the center of power and often spread out over the country. And from a minister's outlook, more anonymous as is for them the minister. The minister is obviously in a position to direct her officials to prepare the legislation she wants to push through, but no one can order officials to enthusiasm, or for that matter, to not make mistakes. In 2004, Mr. John Prescott, the British Deputy Prime Minister, was arranging a referendum in the northeast of England <clears throat> about devolved power to the regions. And he put much work into the campaign, <clears throat> including <clears throat> recording a phone message in which he said, this is John Prescott ringing. I'm ringing to urge you to vote in next week's referendum. <clears throat> now, these messages were to go out in bursts to households across the region around tea time, but the technician programming the machinery got the timing wrong so that thousands and thousands of sleepy households 
answer the phone at 4.30 or 5 in the morning to Mr. Prescott's cheerful encouragement. Now, a ministry can be reasonably handled with, by any minister who is not completely without charm and administrative skill, but when she turns her hand to implementation, she will find herself on more wobbly ground and dependent not only on officials in her own secretariat, but also on those Michael Lipsky called street-level bureaucrats. To get a ministry to cooperate might be a bit of frustration, but to get the whole apparatus of agencies on different levels of responsibility and their thousands of managers and clerks to cooperate, coordinate, and pull together, well, that's a nightmare. Implementation is often local. Services have to be delivered where people live and work. And the trouble with implementation, therefore, is not only the distance and that orders must travel down through multiple layers of administration, as in a game of Chinese whispers, but also local interests and local government. And always, local people see things differently from how they are seen centrally. They think central authorities want to command them too much, do not understand local circumstances, and do not give them the resources they need to follow up on decided policies. Local interests are always suspicious and often contemptuous of those people up there in the capital. And local government always feel under siege and always want to protect and, if possible, to extend their domain of authority. Even local sub-agencies that are part of the central government's apparatus are often local in their identity and torn between the duty to execute orders from above and their inclination to see things from below. And even that is not the end of it. <clears throat> the orders contained in political decisions now go out into the country to those who are really distant, to businesses, organizations, voluntary agencies, schools, families, and to all the people who make them up as directors, workers, members, husbands, wives, pupils, and so on. And this is where things start to get not only difficult for the government, but desperate. It may be hell to get administrators to cooperate as they are supposed, but that is at least to deal with people whose job duty it is to obey orders. Once ministers are into telling ordinary people how, go, how to go about their business, they find themselves on very shaky ground indeed. The line of command is now very long, from the minister of agriculture in his office to the prairie farmer who is tilling the soil. Will the order be heard, understood, and respected? And will those expected to obey and comply uh, 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 except to walk in tandem. It may be a duty for citizens to obey the laws, but that is not much for a minister to lean on if uh, citizens strongly dislike the laws they, that are imposed on them. Within ministries and agencies, ministers may hope to have support from a culture of administration. Out there in the citizenry, the culture may be very different 
for example, entrenched skepticism of big governments. <clears throat> and finally, and of course Im importantly, the government now meets interests in everyone, everything from local governments via union leaders to business captains. The government may want to impose its will on society, but society is a messy matter to deal with, made up of endless crisscrossing constellations that can and will counter, resist, or frustrate if they can. So in this section, I've spent more time explaining implementation than decision-making, and that's because Trouble in effective governance is more likely in implementation than in decision-making, much more so, and more than is often recognized. <clears throat> now, governments have big things they want done, and all they can do is to give orders, and that mostly to others who are reluctant, often strongly, to heed them. Somehow, a small group of ministers has to dominate a big population. They have to make their will reach over the canyon that separates their great ambitions from their little capacities. Everyone knows that governance is difficult, but how difficult? Well, I land on the side of saying that it is very, very difficult. You have one power and you think you are there, more likely you are in trouble. From now on, it's relentless and unforgiving uphill struggle so that the first step towards effective government is to reconcile yourself to how terribly difficult the job is going to be. Everyone knows that no government can get everything done that it may want and that others may want of it. But how strong is the imperative to prioritize? Well, I land on the side of saying very, very strong. And I here agree with your um, Harvard colleague, Michael Porter, that the essence of strategy is choosing what not to do. Tony Blair's implementer-in-chief, Michael Barber, who pulled off the feat of writing a very funny book about his job as chief enforcer for the government. Michael Barber claims that the government he was working for after some times learned to prioritize. But when you read through his book, it lays out the difficulty. You meet long list after long list of ever-shifting priorities and see that much, indeed almost everything, was prioritized, but that very little, indeed almost nothing, was ever deprioritized. Everyone knows that public policy is a matter of making good decisions and then following through to their implementation. But what is the balance? I lean on the side that decision-making is comparatively easy and that it is implementation that, that represents the serious difficulty. It is the hands of myriad others who often dislike what they are told to do and to cooperate about it and over whom ministers have very little control. 
Everyone knows that leadership is a matter of both commanding and persuading, but what matters the most? The relationship between commands and signals, again, is that commands are useless unless backed up by signals, whereas signals are often used on their own. So surprisingly, therefore, it is the politics of signals and not of commands that is the great constant in government action. Signals, messages, projects. It was President Bush the Elder who called it the vision thing, are what a government that is to be successful must manage. Everyone knows that effective governance springs from a combination of good structures and competent leaders. But how much from each? Well, I land on the side of stressing persons, leadership, and skills. Some political scientists in the um, quote-unquote new governance literature believe that governance has become more complex. Complex, complexity is their favorite word. It's not my favorite word. Simplicity is my favorite word. But for these guys, complexity is the favorite word. Governance has become more complex than it was in simpler olden times, and that governments are increasingly constrained in the options available to them. Understanding governance, then, is a matter of more observing the environment governments work within than how they operate. But this is a case of the more things change, the more they are the same. Governments have always struggled with making things happen. On this, Nothing has changed, and there is no new complexity. In this book, I visit rafts of governments, both successful and unsuccessful ones throughout history, and see that governments can be unsuccessful in very favorable circumstances, and not only in hostile environments. The new Labour government in Britain, as of 1997, my favorite example, was given all the power a democratic government could dream of, and had 10 years of uninterrupted, steady economic growth as their environment. Even so, it failed in almost everything it puts its hand to. Almost always when governments are effective and get done what they <coughs> set themselves to do, it is under good leadership. The leadership of forceful personalities may not be sufficient for workable governance, but it is necessary and it is essential. These conclusions now I will pull together in two final recommendations. First, the law of leadership. Governance is today, as it always was, an art that some master and others don't. Second, in the law of simplicity. In public policy, keep it straight and simple. If you can't, don't do it. It won't work. If it isn't simple, it isn't implementable. Thank you for your attention. Right, Stein, do you want to take your own questions? Or would well, if, if you would direct it, I'll, I'll try to answer. But you, if you can. So, uh, yeah, why don't we take some questions? We have uh, plenty of time, actually, 25, 30 minutes for questions. So <coughs> Comments? Yeah. 
Uh, yes, hi. Thank you for your talk. Uh, as some people in this room know, I'm as interested in followership as I am in leadership. So my question to you is, I was glad you referenced followership in the beginning of your talk, but I'm curious as to why at the very end uh, you kind of dropped it and uh, returned to leadership as the sort of cure-all, when in fact your own earlier point was, at least by implication, how difficult it is to lead when followers simply are less inclined than they used to, <coughs> to be to do what we want them to do. Um, right. Uh, well, part of the answer may be that I've, I've just these last few days learned <laughs> the concept of followership. And, uh, um, uh, so um, um, I haven't reflected on that term previously. Now, um, but I, I, do, I do see it, uh, I mean, leaders are dependent on getting followers to comply, to follow. And as I said, I'm, I'm not speaking on power here, but if I would, I would have emphasized that to obtain, to, to, to um, uh, be able to make others followers, very, very strong pressures need to be brought down upon ordinary people and the followers. There is a, you know, an, a, 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 um, um, constant conflict between leaders and followers. And that conflict, if there's going to be governance, must be resolved in some reasonable way. There must be what I call a settlement. And for that settlement, uh, followers need to be brought into the fold by very heavy pressures. Now, when things work, we hardly see those pressures. Because things are, you know, in some countries you will see that uh, some countries have worked their way through um, to a, a, an instinctive settlement where, by and large, governments give their people what they need and the people then return to the governors what they need. But that is because there are very strong pressures at work, although they work well, so they're not so visible. So the, the, in my schema then, followership comes from the pressures that are brought down upon citizens. Uh, and those pressures come very much from up above. Um, I mean, the, the, the pressures, as I see it, that are needed for a settlement, pressures on citizens that are needed for the settlement, are some that pull citizens into loyalty with their, uh, with their governors, and some who push them. It's not enough to pull. They must, we must also be pushed. And those that pull are fair governance and the display of good leadership. And those that push are good constitutional arrangements, good laws, and a good political culture. Yeah? Now, these things all need to be cultivated from above, but they need to be cultivated from above in such a way that that cultivation is accepted from below. But 
But I, I mean, I think, I think I would agree with you in a way that there's a strong emphasis in what I'm saying on what comes from above. Maybe stronger than it should be and maybe stronger than it will be when I have the opportunity to reflect on the idea that not only is there leadership, but there is also followership. What are the qualities of followership? But, as I, but I, I, I need to, to take as my defense that I have learned this concept only the last couple of days. read the Economist Review makes me want to read the book uh, <laughs> you all the more. Uh, but uh, I, I, first a comment and then a question. Uh, you might be interested in a uh, quote from Dwight Eisenhower, who was not only a president but also a general. And in the quote he says, command is easy. Anybody can give a command. Leadership is getting people to do something because they what something you want because they want to, oh, they, they, and I think it fits very perfectly with your theme. <coughs> and, and, and you'll find the same language here. Yeah. Ultimately, to make people comply because they want to comply. Right. Yeah. So, which which I call soft power. I know. As you know, you and I have talked <laughs> about this before. I know. But I wanted to ask you a question, which was, <coughs> what happens when you look at the um, long-term secular decline in trust in government, which uh, if we look at the public opinion polls, we notice that the amount of trust that citizens have in government has been declining. Now it goes up and down, and I'm not talking about the last few weeks. I'm talking about since uh, basically in the U.S. it starts to decline about uh, uh, late 60s. Um, and I think it's true also in, uh, in Britain, there's an analogous uh, decline. It's actually true of most modern democracies. But what does that do to your proposition? In other words, if, the, if leadership uh, and governing a nation of devils is, in, it depends upon signals, and signals depend upon the followers wanting what the leader wants as the leader sets the signals, what happens when the level of trust declines? In other words, have you looked at this over time? You should see something quite different from periods when there was high trust to periods when there's low trust. Uh, well, you're right, of course, that there is a decline in confidence in government, and that we find that uh, across the board from one country to another. But not only in government, in other institutions in other also, institutions. in business, in right. churches, and so on. So there's a general uh, decline of, of um, deference, the, the end of deference, it has been called. So now, <clears throat> if we look at, uh, and th this also includes uh, uh, a, lower, uh, a lowering of confidence in democracy. No, a lowering of confidence in democratic government. But if you look at the opinion uh, data carefully, we see that there's no falling away of belief in democratic principles. But there is, a, uh, a, there is less deference of the exercise of democratic government. Now that can be because of higher expectations, or it can also be that people are smarter. I mean, you know, populations are now much better educated than previously so that they are in a much better 
position to judge the kind of leadership, kind of governance that they are exposed to. And it may be, um, uh, it may be a fair reward for not very good governance. Um, I gave a, a lecture on this um, um, last week in Britain, where I used some examples on exactly this. And I started with, in Britain, with um, I started, as I said, with, at the top in importance with football. Um, and you know, there's, there's um, uh, now a, a very steep decline in people's belief in, in football in Britain. Now that, as I see it, is entirely reasonable. <laughs> this is because um, you know, the, the football game is absolutely awash with money. And in the British case, almost nothing has been done to use that money to invest in the game. It is spread out at the top. And under the top, British football is a very poor game. So uh, the captains in football haven't taken the opportunity that new money has given them to invest in the game and to improve the basis of the game. Therefore, you know, England cannot mount a decent national team in spite of Chelsea and Manchester United that are brilliant. Actually, they're not even that, all that brilliant, but never mind. So, so, you know, this critical attitude from the population side may be a fair, some of it may be a fair response to uh, not very good leadership. However, the, the, it's clearly a very much more difficult game than it was previously, that governors have to prove themselves more strongly than previously, and that citizens ask and expect much more of them uh, than, they did, than, than, than uh, they did previously. So this settlement that I'm talking about is more difficult to find uh, than I think it has been uh, in previous times. Now, I shouldn't add that although I, in, in this talk, I spoke very much about signals, uh, you know, I, I also, in the broader perspective, you know, underline very strongly fair governance, fair governance, that you know, if governance is not fair, it will not be respected because there isn't any, any reason, any good reason that it should be respected. So it's not just on the signal side. There's underlying that an assumption that governments must deliver real governance that merits the respect of their citizens. That too is more difficult than it has been. This is one of the areas where I agree with the uh, new governance literature that um, uh, governments today have, in one area at least, less capacity than they had previously, namely in the power to tax, the power to tax us because of, of globalization is much, much uh, weaker. It's much harder to do than previously. Uh, so so there's, there's more to it than signals. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but also, I have wanted very much to emphasize this dialogue between the leaders and the led, and that the leaders have to engage in that dialogue in a way that uh, enables them to extract from their followers the authority they need. Uh, yeah, I'll ask a question. Yeah, and then, no. <coughs> Mark. I mean, it's. An I'll try to be. I'll try to be a bit briefer. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, Sometimes it's fine. Um, so, what we're kind of working up to is a, an account of signaling and successful and less successful signaling. And so I, I hear you urging, you know, renaming our our 
chief executive office to the signaler in chief rather than the commander in chief, I think. But then um, your emphasis, or it's easy to read uh, as your emphasis, if maybe not fair, as on the signaler, on he who issues the signal. So there's a nice treatment of Churchill as being actually a terrible manager, but a very good signaler um, in, in your book, which I didn't know and I, th I thought was interesting. But then, you know, stressing uh, Joe's comment a little bit and expanding it, there's two other, and, and then also Barbara's, there's two other considerations, right? One is the context in which the signal is given, right? And so Churchill may have had a particularly favorable context, one of national emergency in which everybody is receptive to a signal, and indeed is looking for a unifying signal, right? And then the third is the characteristics of the followers and the, the signalese, the receivers of the would-be signal. And part of that has to do with the information environment and how good they are at judging what's being sold to them. Part of it may also be much simpler considerations like homogeneity. You may think that it may be much easier to issue successful signals in uh, a country that's very homogeneous, you know, uh, Germany uh, uh, before unification and large immigration, small northern European states, et cetera, as opposed to the United States, which is um, you know, notoriously heterogeneous. But, but so I'm wondering whether or not you'd accept kind of that, the, the equal importance or maybe even more importance of those two factors, the context in which the signal is given <coughs> and the characteristics of the signalese uh, beyond, maybe above and beyond the, the qualities of the charisma or the capabilities of the signaler? Yes. Um, no, I, I take that, and, and I mean, Churchill was an unsuccessful politician for much of his life until he was, <laughs> until he was so lucky that the Second War came around, <laughs> Second World War came around, and he found himself in the right context for his particular kind of skills. Another example in Britain uh, would be Margaret Thatcher. You know, he was you know, absolutely fantastically influential in changing mindsets. Uh, in, my, in my view, the reason that she, and, and it's the same with Reagan in the United States, were so successful is that their influence went deep into the political culture, into ideas not just in policies, but deep into ideas. And Margaret Thatcher in Britain, <coughs> she certainly was able to do that because of the context. I mean, it's very difficult <laughs> to remember today the damage that the Labour Party had done to itself in Britain and to the country. You know, things were falling apart in Britain. Uh, you know, the lights were going out, the rubbish was not collected. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's unbelievable how bad things were. <coughs> Even so, even so, at that time, I think there were alternative potential narratives that could have been mobilized to respond to the kind of crisis that Britain found itself in. <coughs> um, and Margaret Thatcher was able to respond to, to that crisis and to capture a narrative. But I don't think, if one looks back of it, that it was the only possible narrative. Um, indeed, uh, Margaret Thatcher's re uh, regime was unsuccessful in its first period. And 
she was heading for election defeat, even against the completely bonkers labor opposition, uh, from which she was salvaged only by the war in, Falk in the Falklands. So when she came into power, today we think that there was a narrative there for Britain, uh, which she articulated, and that it was almost inevitable that this was the kind of political change that would happen in Britain. I don't think that's right. There were alternative narratives that could have responded had there been other forceful leaders with, who, who were able to articulate a different story. And part of the reason that Margaret Thatcher was successful was contextual. I, you know, as you mentioned, I mentioned the, the Falklands War, but it was also her forceful personality that enabled her uh, in, in the long run to exploit the possibilities that were put in front of her and in due course to sort of change political cultures and ideas in Britain in such a way that uh, that change is still um, the, the, the dominant intellectual context in Britain today after all that has happened subsequently. So the, the personality here again, I think. Of course, the personality is not everything. There has to be a context. But given the context, the personality is also very important. So, um, uh, thank you very much for the talk. And um, I'm delighted to see uh, one political scientist who has rescued the idea that the state is in the business of exercising authority as well as in delivering services. And it feels to me like that's an important shift in sort of the way that uh, government has thought of, been thought about recently in uh, Great Britain and uh, uh, in other uh, democracies. So I welcome that. My reading of the tools of government literature, though, which I think is, again, an interesting line of attack that hasn't really been taken up um, as much here as I think it could have been. Um, there's a line of argument in the tools of government that says there are really three things that the government does, right, as opposed to just one. And one of those is to give orders and use its authority. Uh, the other is to uh, spend money and buy things, right? And that was noticeably missing from uh, your account. Of course, it uses its tax dollars often to raise the money that it needs to buy things, but it also does uh, sell things and buy things or give away money and buy things from people as well as regulate them. You agree with that? Not. No? Why not? No. Government does not buy things. Of course it does. No. Government it buys tanks. It buys Government uh, parts. gives others orders to buy things. So you're thinking it's, of government as... Oh, you're thinking of government as only the elected cabinet. officials it's at the, the cabinet. cabinet. Oh, okay. That's, then that's all other matter. No, right. No, no, so I'll, I'll give you an example. Sure, sure. I got that. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, the, the area where we really think that governments can't command is in the military. The president is the commander-in-chief, and obviously, isn't it? The military so, obey. Okay. Now, uh, one week before the uh, second Iraq war, the uh, top military uh, commander in Britain, Admiral Boyce, went to the prime minister and demanded from him a written insurance that the war was legal in international law. I mean, what he said to the prime minister is, I, I want to have that letter. If I don't, I will not obey. I've spoken to him about it. I know it's serious. 
So, you know, this is an example. And of course, the, the government says... I think says, Archon's point is the, is the relevant one here, which is you're thinking of the government as the uh, prime minister and cabinet. Is that right? Rather than... Right. Okay. I was thinking of the government much more expansively as an institution that was present in lots of the whole state. And when you look at the whole state, I agree with you that the guys at the top can only give in orders. But when you look at the whole state, the state is using its authority routinely in its interactions with its citizens. It's also uh, giving away money and buying things from a lot of people. Um, but the point I wanted to make, get around to in the end, was that the, so the three tools of government in the tools of government literature here would be authority, money, and moral exhortation, all right? And what you describe as a signal seems to me to be much closer to what would be described here as moral exhortation, right? And then the interesting question is, is well, what determines the government's ability to use moral exhortation to accomplish its purposes? And that's the question where followership comes in and soft power comes in. And the answer is that if there's a strong normative pre uh, uh, thing existing in the existing political culture, and I send a signal down that aligns perfectly with that, uh, that culture, I'm going to get an awful lot of compliance and enthusiastic compliance, all right? If I send a signal down that is unaligned with the existing uh, political culture, I'm going to get nothing but resistance and uh, obfuscation. This raises, plus one, to one other point, is that part of the reason that happens is not only that individuals believe when you send that signal, but also that third-party enforcers show up who are not the government. All right, so you get a lot of informal social control that gets activated if there's a powerful norm supporting what the government's going to try to do, right? Um, so those are ways in which moral exhortation operates, right? But the challenging question for me, and for you I think as well, is suppose it turns out that the political culture that you've got to work with, the followers from whom you're seeking followership, or to use your language, to extract from them uh, the willingness to comply with the government's rules. Suppose that that um, moral structure is, um, is antithetical to what you're trying to get done, or bad. Uh, take, for example, the United States. Uh, we would like to say, um, you know, we'd actually like to have a, a society that offered equality of opportunity to people of a lot of different races, right? Well, the political culture doesn't quite support that, right? So then the question is, is what does leadership consist of in that particular context? And then comes a very interesting part of political leadership, which isn't about implementation, right? And it isn't about decision making. It's about the exercise of influence over uh, the political culture itself and the values that rest there, right? And that one is really where I think, uh, I mean, I'm very interested in mobilizing all of this other stuff on behalf of getting, but that's the one that I find the hardest one to deal with. Um, and so, uh, but so could you comment on that as a act? Notice peop many people would say it's not even the state's responsibility to try to orchestrate a conversation among the citizens about what an attractive set of political values would be, right? And, but you said that po preferences change. And then the question is, well, who's responsible for organizing the process by which preferences change? <clears throat> Well, um, uh, Robert Dahl said about, I'll just quote in blah, blah, blah. In other words, the country possesses a democratic political culture. Lucky the country whose history has led to these happy results. So, um, the, I mean, the, the, the political culture, uh, you know, rests on deep historical roots. Um, 
where there has been luck so that that kind of culture evolves, it is likely to be maintained because people see that you know, things have worked in the future, they believe that things are going to work in the past. Where it is, has not taken hold or is falling apart, it's very difficult to rebuild it again. Now, where political culture comes from is, as Robert Dahl said, it's a mystery. All we can say is that it rests on, well, some of what we can say is that it rests on deep historical roots. But it also rests on the way governance is exercised. Um, and I think here that uh, the perception that government is exercised in a fair way is very important. Now, fair means that no significant group in the population has a viable reason to claim that they are being treated unfairly. Now, uh, with the kind of you know, developments we are seeing in our, our kinds of countries with rising inequality and, 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 and um, uh, you know, lowering of social mobility and so on, it's very difficult to see why citizens should think that they are being exposed to fair governance. So it rests, it's historical, but it also rests on the way government is exercised today. And here again, uh, one dimension of that is fairness in governance. And another dimension is the display of good leadership. It's leadership that people see as attractive. Machiavelli said that if, you know, if people recognize their superiors as their lords, their lords, they will have natural affection. They will feel natural affection for them. So it's I mean, a lot about perception, but that perception goes back to the realities of how governance and leadership is exercised. But you could imagine that the last 300 years of democracy was designed to get people to obey less because they felt a natural affection for the Lord and his skill than that they agreed with him on the basis of reason that they would like to go along with him. Right? I mean, uh, it may be that we've not made very much progress in that. <laughs> But not because it's a democracy. That that would have to be because be it that would have to be a part of a democracy that delivers good governance. Oh, I agree with that. Huh? You don't have any problem with me on that. Huh? So it's I mean democracy does not get loyalty because it is a democracy. Right. But we hope that a democracy is more inclined to deliver the kind of governance that would command loyalty. Did you have a question? Yeah. If we assume that uh, democracy is working well and the government is good, then how much do we pay for the government personnel, the prime minister and president? I mean, last three weeks ago, the, the government here was shut down, and the people in the governments, they went home because they are not paid. So I don't know whether the people in the governments working for payment or uh, working for something else. 
I mean, in the old time, in, as uh, people in the power, they can use power not only for exercise their policy, but also they can earn money. Is now is, we can call it corruptions. But if it is not like a corrupt government, so government is working well, then how much we pay? Like a, the football player is earn a lot of money. The government's prime minister, they don't working for the money, but still they need to pay. And how we understand the payment for the government and how much we, we should pay for them? That's the question. How much we should pay? <laughs> you know, Tony and I were having a conversation yesterday about how much the Chinese state costs the Chinese people. I'm trying to figure that out. Um, I mean, universally, uh, political leaders are paid pretty moderate salaries. So there is, I suppose, a belief that they are in it for not just for money, but for something else. Um, uh, how much we should pay our lawmakers is a very hot, hotly debated question in Britain, where um, the political culture on this matter has uh, ground itself into a kind of uh, standstill, so that it is impossible to pay the lawmakers more than they are being paid now. Um, so I don't know. I suppose it's like in any other market that one should uh, pay what is uh, necessary to get the um, reasonably qualified people to take those jobs. And that seems to be less than the, those kinds of generally less than those kinds of qualified people would be able to command in other kinds of jobs. So, um, I don't know, I don't, have a, I don't have an authoritative answer on how much we should pay our leaders. Um, my name is Justin Guest, I'm a lecturer in the uh, Department of Government and Sociology. Um, I, I guess in ways of linking several of these questions together, and something that's been on my mind, is the youth of religion. Uh, as a uh, means of power. Uh, and perhaps the first reaction is, well, we're talking democracies, but still, the use <laughs> of religion as a means of wielding power. Um, and in particular, since the end of the Cold War and the end of history, the idea that um, the only ideology, the most persuasive ideology, is that of democracy and good governance uh, can was was expounded and really with September 11th uh, being the recognized milestone um, the idea that um, Islam as a faith uh, can also be wielded it, in a lot of ways you see uh, many Western leaders um, lean towards a sort of Christian liberalism uh, to respond to that uh, Islamism as a response uh, and in some cases not just a Christian liberalism but actually simply unadulterated Christianity in the case of George W. Bush who regularly cited uh, um, uh, verse, uh, and frequently uh, acknowledge the fact that he used the Bible to help make political decision making, uh, as you were talking about uh, ex ex executing orders. So I'm going to play ball uh, with the idea that the, that the government is at the very top. Um, I see religion as this emerging um, factor here that it seems to be, at least until this point in our discussion today, unrecognized. Maybe a powerful repertoire for signaling. And precisely. Precisely. Language, right? Well, Feiner in his history of government covers 5,000 years. Um, he, he returns repeatedly to belief systems, which may be religious, but not necessarily religious. And that governments throughout history 
have um, felt the need to mobilize some kind of belief system which is part of what they seek legitimacy from. Um, and I think it's right that we use democracy, human rights, and so on as a belief system today that legitimizes democratic rule. And um, as many of us believe, the advantages of democracy over other forms of uh, government. Um, uh, and, uh, and I don't think we are, we're not, in modernity, we're not free from resorting to the use or having to resort to the use of belief systems as part of what legitimizes the, the rule. Now, the, the issue of um, Islam and religious responses to Islam today um, is, is, I think it's to the side of what I'm able to, I mean, I, I have nothing more intelligent to say about that than, than you could say. I don't know how that is going to play out, um, whether we are dealing with short-term issues or some trends that are long-term and profound. Okay, I, I'm, I'm not going to contradict that, and uh, it's, a, it's an interesting thought and an interesting idea. All right, well, let's everybody give the sign a big hand. And um, please hang around. Uh, we'll be around to have a little bit of food and drink that's left, and, and do ask him about the more prescriptive part, because this is one reason why this is a book very much worth reading, is he has a lot to say about what we should do, not just... Uh, I, I, I sh I, if, you'll, if you'll give me one minute, I should correct uh, something you said, which was correct. Uh, <laughs> but what you said was correct because uh, there was a mistake in the book. And that was about, and it's too bad that Joe has left, it was about the quality of political leadership in the United States. Well, it's right that I say in the book that there hasn't been any good leadership since Ronald Reagan. and then. Joe has recently published a book about American presidential leadership in which he puts um, Bush the elder on a very high pedestal in terms of both moral and effective leadership. Um, and um, I had already elevated Eisenhower to that pedestal. I think he's a great leader. Um, and um, and I, I've been pleased to see that Joe and I agree on that. But I hadn't looked at Bush the, we need to be very careful there, Bush the elder. <laughs> Bush the elder. Um, and um, if I'd had the benefit of that reading before I wrote this, I would have been a bit more cautious uh -huh. in my absolutism on that front. And maybe there's enough evidence now to make it the judgment about Obama. Well, uh, um, <laughs> uh, I think there is. I think that. It's also here. I think that Mr. Obama can go to 
retirement from the presidency in confidence that he will be considered a reasonably high standard president in the United States. Not as he wanted to be a transformative president, but a president that has uh, achieved a lot in his presidency and much more than he so far is given credit for. I had a conversation with um, another colleague of, about this yesterday. I said, oh, I'm not so sure about that, but I'm pretty confident <laughs> that when the dust is settled, he will be considered to have been a very significant American president. Thank you very much.